Welcome to the Breakwater Podcast. I am Samantha, your host for this episode and the Drug-Free Communities Grant Coordinator for Breakwater. I am joined in this episode by Steering Team Member and Treatment and Recovery Team Chair, Dan Hawk, and the one and only Monte Ball. Monte shares with us his personal experience with alcohol and living a life in recovery. We talk about his experience with the Fixed Project, Social Norms in Wisconsin, and a little bit about how he thinks toxic masculinity can affect young athletes and men like him. Monte also lets us in on a little secret at the end. I hope you enjoy this episode, and hop over to Monte's podcast when you're done listening here. Link to Monte's podcast and other resources are in the show notes. Dan and Monte are up next. Dan, Monty, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing well. Um, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too as well. Thanks, Sam. Uh, would you guys mind um, taking a few minutes to introduce yourself and share with our listeners about a little bit about who you are and what you do? Monty, let's start with you. Absolutely. Um, so my name is Monte Ball. Um, I am someone who identifies as, you know, I identify as someone in long-term recovery, four years sober um, from alcohol. And what I currently do now is I am the outreach specialist for the Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, primarily focusing on our OD2A grant, which is our overdose data to action, which focuses on providing resources and linkage to our communities of color that are um, struggling with the opioid crisis. Um, so I'm excited to be here, excited to share my journey and uh, learn. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. Dan? Uh, my name is Dan Hawk. I am the president of contract packaging and recovery support with the Pricity. Uh, I'm also a person in long-term recovery for uh, the last 22 years, and I am a part of the Breakwater uh, Coalition, and I've been a part of that group since 2016, uh, something like that. Been on the steering team and the treatment and recovery uh, team as well. Dan, you are my co-host today, which is exciting. And then Monte, you are our guest. So we're here to learn all about you today. Do you mind telling us a little bit about where you grew up, what life was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in a town called Winsfield, Missouri. Um, it's about 40 miles straight west of St. Louis and um, grew up relatively fortunate. Um, nice neighborhoods, uh, two-parent household, Grew up with my uh, older sister until my younger sister was born. Um, and, um, you know, just had a really, really good childhood. Really good childhood. Started playing football at the age of eight. Um, always wanted to play for the Denver Broncos. Grew up a Broncos fan. So my journey started when I was eight. Um, my father was my coach. I mean, the entire family was on board with the journey. Um, so obviously started to play well. I was fortunate enough to receive a scholarship to play uh, at the University of Wisconsin. And it was a pretty easy decision for me. I had other options, but I was like, you know what? After my official visit to Wisconsin, I was like, that's that's an environment that I'm looking forward to to play in. That's a, that's a team I want to play for and, and just the atmosphere is something I wanted. So decided to play for the University of Wisconsin, Madison, uh, the Badgers, and um, had a pretty good career um, with them. I was fortunate enough to play in three Rose Bowls, um, three-time Big Ten champs, um, Heisman finalist. Uh, I mean, it was it was awesome. Fortunate enough to play next to J.J. Watt, 
Russell Wilson, James White, Melvin Gordon. I mean, it was a remarkable time, memories that I'm most definitely looking forward to sharing with my child. Um, then obviously, yeah, I went on to play in the National Football League, drafted by my favorite team growing up, the Denver Broncos. So I honestly could not even write that story because uh, <laughs> that happening is so rare. Um, so landed with my favorite team, landed playing next to side by side with Pete Manning, a guy I was playing on Madden when I was like 11 or 12. So seeing him in person and then standing next to him in the huddle was a surreal experience. I honestly, I, I struggle still to this day trying to put it into words because you, you, it's, it's, it's tough. It's one of those things where it's, I cannot believe it happened, but obviously throughout my college uh, years and obviously my two years in the NFL, I struggled, you know, behind closed doors with alcohol, struggled with alcoholism, struggled with, you know, a little bit of my identity as well. I placed all of my identity in the, in the uh, sport of football. So once I got into the NFL and I kind of, you know, I knew that my playing days were coming to an end. I really struggled mentally with that because I was always, always associated with the game of football. It was always Monte Ball, the football player. So once I started to see that door closing, you know, all my emotions, all my anxiety, all my stress, depression kind of boiled over. And, you know, I, I, I hit rock bottom. I'm happy to be here today. Um, chatting with you guys, the the road to recovery. My journey has been remarkable, and I'm I'm looking forward to diving in with it or uh, with you guys. So, Monte, talk about when did you first start drinking or or using alcohol? When did you kind of discover that? Man, I love talking about this stuff because it's so important for me. I really didn't drink a lot in high school. I didn't have my first beverage, alcoholic beverage, until I was 17. You know, I stayed on the straight and narrow throughout high school, you know, I partied here and there, but I can count on, you know, both hands, how many times I partied and how many times I drank in high school. So it wasn't a lot compared to, to most. So I was 17 years old when I first had my my first drink, first party. You know, I, I presented in a way as it was kind of like a fork in the road. I had, an, I had an option to put the cup down and lead the party, but I chose to stay and drink, um, which I think started the cycle of, of, of addiction. Did you, did you know, or how, how early did you know that, uh, that alcohol was potentially going to be a problem? Right. Uh, it, I didn't, it didn't really hit me until my junior year, my junior year in college, um, which is so ironic because, you know, I had my first drink of alcohol when I was 17 in high school, which places me, I think, uh, my junior year in high school, I believe, maybe my senior year, but in college, um, in Wisconsin, my junior year was really when I was struggling the most. And it's ironic, I, I say, because that was my best year on the field, playing um, side by side with Russell Wilson. We had a phenomenal year that year, really great football team. But I struggled off the field because I I, I struggled with social anxiety, um, you know, with fame, with uh, playing well. There were more cameras, more conversations that I really struggled with, more of uh, depression, um, a lot of pressure, severe anxiety that I struggled with that I really didn't know how to, um, you know, deal with, you know, at a very impressionable stage in my life, I really didn't know what to do. So I just went with the flow of things. Uh, people were partying. So I said, okay, I'll go party. Um, and I kind of built that relationship with alcohol then, like really built it because I started to feel as if alcohol was my answer to decompressing and it became my best friend then. What was um, what was the messaging around alcohol and, and drinking growing up in your family? Yeah, so my uh, 
you know, my father is pretty open about his story. Uh, my father is 24 years sober from alcohol. He struggled with it uh, his earlier years in life when he was a teenager. Um, so in high school, I heard stories, of course. Uh, you know, obviously when my parents knew that I was experimenting a bit, you know, they pulled me to the side and obviously talked to me about it, um, shared information to me about my father. But, you know, I just felt as if it was every parent just over-exaggerating things and just trying to keep their kid from experimenting. Um, so my message was always, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. Um, so that continued, obviously, in college. But uh, I, I, you know, again, I, 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 their messages were still in my head when I was drinking in college and stuff. But, you know, the pressure, the pressure to perform, the pressure to be this poster child for an athletic program, in a sense, um, the pressure of, of social media, um, fans having that direct contact um, with you, um, you know, whether you have a good game or not, they're still going to have their opinions. So just just a lot of it, the societal pressures, familial pressures, everything just weighing on a 19, 20 year old is 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 when I started to really, um, like I said, build that relationship. One thing we talk a lot about from a coalition standpoint is social norms and how those social norms impact youth as they grow up, as they begin to experiment with alcohol or other substances, the relationship they develop. And now this conversation is especially interesting because you both have fathers who struggled with alcoholism and went into recovery. And then you both started experimenting with alcohol and ended up experiencing addiction. And and now you're both in long-term recovery. So you may have some similar opinions or outlooks on this, or they may be wildly different because Dan, you grew up in Wisconsin and Monte, you grew up in Missouri. So my question for you, Monte, is social norms, you were able to stay on kind of that straight and narrow, as you called it, through high school. You didn't really start drinking or anything until 17. And even then it was here and there, what most people would consider normal teenage behavior. But once you moved to Wisconsin, we're going through college, you had all these external pressures on you. We're trying to understand your mental health, how to deal with your mental health. Alcohol became more of that crutch for you of more of that. This is this is my solution to the problems I'm feeling inside. Can you point to maybe any differences like social norm wise between where you grew up in Missouri and the culture of Wisconsin, specifically the culture of UW Madison or Madison in general. I mean, that has a reputation, a well-known reputation all of its own, I think. Absolutely. I mean, that this is love this conversation because I speak about this, you know, all the time um, off the record, et cetera, because there's a, there's a huge difference. So the social norms back in Missouri, I think even still to this day, it's, 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 it's speaking when, 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 when talking about alcohol is, completely different than Wisconsin. Um, back home, it's not advertised the same. Back home, it's not it's not okay to allow for your children to drink at 15, 16, even if, you know, you're the parent and you're with them. So, you know, moving here to Wisconsin when I was, you know, 18, I immediately noticed it. Immediately noticed the difference in the way people party. Immediately noticed the difference in how alcohol is advertised, how it's okay to get drunk with your parents and stuff like that. So the social norms here were, were shocking to me and also my family as well, because my parents and my, my sisters live here as well. And it was, it, was, uh, it was most definitely noticeable to us, you know, how different it is, how different alcohol is presented in this state. And so whenever I do speak about this stuff, the one thing I always bring up is this state, you know, this, the, the drinking culture is something that, 
you know, the individuals in this state take pride in. Um, being one of the drunkest states in America, or if not the drunkest state in America. Um, so for me, I take a lot of passion or I have a lot of passion. And whenever I say that this state prides themselves on being, a, you know, one of the drunkest states in America, I say, okay, then that gives us the opportunity then to help way more people here um, to get away from that. So the social norms here are completely different than Missouri. And that's why I do a lot of work here because I'm trying to train trying to change the fabric in a sense of the drinking culture in this state because we talk about opioids we talk about other drugs but we i think we're missing alcohol conversations about alcohol underage drinking the effects of alcohol on a young mind so a question for both of you as people in long-term recovery how does the alcohol culture the way it's advertised the way people react to it i mean in a lot of ways all the advertising has become wallpaper for a lot of us. We don't even really see it anymore unless you're, you're looking for it. How does all that, how does the attitude, the acceptance of alcohol, the, the fact that it's really ingrained to basically any family activity um, or family gathering, how does that affect your recovery? And I'd, I'd love to hear Dan's t- uh, take on this as well. But for, for myself, I think it, it presents many challenges, especially around the wintertime, um, you know, with holiday season and stuff like that. I mean, this state, um, you know, people like to get together. People like to drink. Um, people like to have a good time. And I think by there being such a heavy drinking culture here in the state, it does present many challenges for those who are um, on their recovery path because alcohol is such a social, you know, entity in a sense to where you know you can get it anywhere and and um, a lot of people here want it during every single activity that they're doing um so it is challenging but also on the flip side of that for someone who is in recovery like myself um it's almost good that i decided to become sober in this state because i have to work on it so much more uh it's 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 in a way like more difficult to do it here in the state. So I always tell myself if I'm capable of grasping my sobriety and staying on it here in this state, I, I believe that I'm capable of doing it elsewhere. <laughs> if I were to leave or if I am to travel or what have you. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's one that I embrace. So first, Sam, let me, I have to thank you for saying like Monty and I basically we're the same person, right? We have the same, same path minus the Super Bowl and Rose Bowl and <laughs> football uh, careers and all that stuff. We're the same person. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, my my dad got in recovery early on, but I knew for me the first time that I got drunk and I was probably 17-ish, 16, I knew it was going to be a problem because I loved it. But I grew up in Wisconsin I and and I've talked about this in the past. I grew up in Wisconsin. I remember waiting for my turn. Like when I got old enough to start partying, like my family did, I, I couldn't wait. You know, we, we grew up in Wisconsin where not just weddings, it's not just weddings that, that have alcohol as part of the culture. It's baptisms and one-year-old birthday parties and first communions. Like this is, this is a reason to, to party. And so for me, in my recovery, what I learned very early on is I have to own it. I have to own being in recovery because if I don't talk about it on the front end, especially 
you know, my kids are older now where they're playing in youth sports. And so we're hanging out with other parents and families and things like that. And if they don't know that I'm in recovery, then every time I see them, they're going to ask me if I want a beer. But the families that I hang around with, they know that I don't drink and they're sensitive to that uh, where they don't ask me or they ask me if I want a soda, which I think is, is pretty cool um, that they're able to respect that. But they know me as a, as, as a person. They don't know me prior when I was, when I was drinking actively. So I, I think that for me, owning it on the front end and just being consistent with all of that is incredibly important so that they know where I'm coming from. And then the other part of it for me um, that I've gotten to over the years is, is just a tremendous level of gratitude for what recovery has given to me. Because without it, I'm, I'm not in a spot where I am. I'm not the father that I am. I'm not the coworker, colleague that I am, friend. So I think for me, understanding that and, and getting, getting there and, and recognizing that being sober is, is why I'm at where I am. Um, and just kind of keeping that in mind every, every day, because, uh, because I appreciate what sobriety has given to me. So those two pieces, I think are why I do it. And I, you know, whether it's in Wisconsin or Missouri or New York, whatever, I mean, being a person in recovery, I, I think has become important to me. And so, you know, then obviously that's part of how I live. Thank you both for so much for sharing your perspective on that. You know, I'm not a person in recovery, so I, it always helps me learn more about how not only how I can be respectful of other people, whether they're open or not open about their story, but thinking about how as a family, we have that relationship or portray a relationship with alcohol with, I mean, I have two young kids. We, I have a lot of cousins and friends with young kids. And it's like, you think about that stuff about if we get together, what activities are do are we doing and what are our children seeing? You know, are we creating an environment where, you know, like you had Monte, where it's just not okay, it's not around, it's not a thing, or are we creating an environment like Dan grew up with where my kids are sitting there growing up going, I can't wait until I can have a drink and, and finding that balance and just being respectful of people when it comes to where and when we have alcohol offer alcohol asking people if they want to drink that kind of thing because I mean you guys are you're open about sharing you you make a point to share your story but not everybody is at a place where they're comfortable doing that I want to switch gears a little bit and speaking of sharing stories Monte you were part of the fixed project the humans of Oshkosh special report tell us a little bit about that project and what your experience was like absolutely yeah that was a that was a remarkable experience because um going in I didn't know what to expect so you know I was just going in as a sponge just absorbing whatever I could uh, absorb so as I went in it was, you know, I was going to um, share my story to the Boys and Girls Club, Oshkosh. So, but as I arrived, you know, there were cameras, there were a few, few individuals who I didn't know were going to be there, but, but I was excited, though. I, I love to share my story to provide hope, etc. But the, the experience was awesome because just to get a collection of stories from those who are in recovery, like I stated before, it provides so much hope, encouragement, and inspiration for others. So just to be a part of that project alone is something that I would cherish because I, 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 I didn't at the moment understand how inclusive it was. I mean, there's so many people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, people who look different from myself, uh, 
So as I look through the book, I'm like, this is actually pretty cool and extremely unique. I really haven't seen anything like that. So just to flip through and, and read other people's stories, see their face, um, it allows for that story to really breathe and come to life. And I think it's awesome for those who are in recovery just to know that they're not alone. People have no idea how important that is for people who are going through recovery or who are in recovery or those who may have just started their recovery journey to know that you're not alone. It's such an awesome feeling because at times you may feel as if you're cornered, trapped, the only person going through what you're going through. But if you start to understand that there are others just like you, maybe even a house down from you who have struggled with what you're struggling with, it, it really provides that social connection that people who are in recovery really need. So that experience with the fixed project was that for me, an experience that provided me that social connection that um, every person who's in recovery and really every human being needs. Yeah, social connectedness is such an important piece of the puzzle. And I mean, arguably, especially now where, you know, there's mask mandates and distancing mandates and that kind of thing, it, it's, difficult to keep those social connections in a meaningful way, especially if you're in a scenario where you're already feeling isolated and alone. Absolutely. And then it was, and then obviously once I shared my story with the youth, I love talking to the youth because they're just, I mean, I remember it when I was young, you have so many aspirations, goals, uh, dreams, um, obviously young to the world, young to life's pitfalls, not really understanding them. So I love sharing my story with our youth, because, you know, they keep hammering away at, oh, how was it like playing football or Super Bowl? And I always try to just reel them back in <laughs> to the mess here. But it's 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 fun. I really, really love that project. I, I really did. And I, uh, I'm hoping to join some more, obviously, once the pandemic kind of cools off. I want to, if you're okay with it, I want to drill down a little bit, because in your fixed story, for anyone that's had a chance to read it. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, I encourage you to go to the website or pick up a book and, and really read not only Monte's story, but all the stories. You talked a little bit about, you found yourself sitting in jail, watching a Super Bowl that you should have been playing in, right? So- yeah, I did. No, oh, go sorry, ahead. I was <laughs> just going to say, let's talk about that a little bit, you know, because you shared your story where you started really developing a, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol as a way or a means to kind of manage your emotions and deal with your social anxiety and the all the pressures of you have to be this football star. You're like, you're, you're Monte the football player. Like that's your identity. So something that you initially we're looking at as almost a solution to a problem you were experiencing. Like, is, is that the moment where you realized that alcohol is the problem or, or what was that experience like sitting there watching a game that you should have been playing in? For me, I mean, it, it, there were many red flags throughout, you know, college and, you know, my years in the NFL, but that I ignored um, that every person who is actively using you know, tends to ignore um, that being, you know, with hindsight being 2020, I wish I would have been like, okay, that's most definitely <laughs> a red flag, that situation. But, you know, obviously, um, yeah, I, I developed a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol and I'm pretty straightforward with my story. I having, or the lack of 
you know, not having the ability or the inability to regulate my emotions, you mix that with alcohol. I mean, that is a recipe for disaster, um, which obviously boiled over and I, and I spewed my insecurities on to my ex-partner. Um, and so obviously that landed me in jail. And, and yeah, so that was in February of 2016. In September of 2015, the uh, Broncos just released me. And John Elway's exact words to me were, you know, it seems as if you, you know, from what we've heard, you, you hit the town pretty hard. And I'm hoping that, you know, you can regain your focus back um, and really get back on track. Um, and so they released me. And then fast forward to February, I'm sitting in jail. Um, actually, hold on. Let me take a step back. My apologies. So after the Broncos released me, I landed with the Patriots. And so I'm like, okay, here's another chapter, you know, you know, my chapter with the Broncos is over now with the Patriots. Well, the Patriots lose, we lose to the Broncos in the AFC championship game. So the team that just released me, just beat us, sent us home packing. Um, and then they go on to play in the Super Bowl. And obviously I'm sitting in jail and I'm watching my favorite childhood team, the team that I enjoyed playing for the team that got rid of me because I drank too much. I used to drink too much. Um, play the Super Bowl and I'm sitting in jail watching it and I remember sitting in jail and um, I was in a in a cell with I think six other people and two of them um, obviously knew my whole life where I played football at high school etc and they were telling me that's supposed to be you up there as we're watching television you're supposed to be up there hoisting that trophy you're supposed to be a role model to us an idol to our youth and uh and, and I really didn't have much to say to them because they were right. I mean, I, I grew up in a, a fairly fortunate life. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was difficult to hear, but I needed to hear it. But that was absolutely my rock bottom. Um, like literally um, the thin mattress that they have you sleep on in jail is, is pretty much rock bottom. Um, but it's exactly what I needed. It was my wake up call. And that was the moment when I was like, okay, alcohol cannot come with me the rest of my life I cannot bring it with me um I, I, I can't uh, and and I'm glad I'm actually glad that that situation happened and I'm glad that I was able to notice my relationship with alcohol at, a, at an early age as opposed to 10 20 years from now yeah that that um that rock bottom that can feel awful at the time um it's hard to, it's important, I think, to, to figure out then that this was maybe the best thing that happened to me. How long did that take for you? And then how long did you, you know, until you got out of jail that you started making changes, whether you, I mean, went to treatment or whatever, what did getting into recovery look like for you? It, it, it actually, it took me some time and, you know, it's not a, and that's what I always share people. It's not a, it's not a light switch. It's not a complete 180 you know, turnaround as soon as I stepped out of jail. I mean, everyone knows when I got out in February, I was actually arrested in April in Whitewater for, for drinking. Um, I was still spiraling out because I was in that stage of feeling sorry for myself. I was still in that stage of, you know, oh, no one cares about what she did. It's just all my fault, you know, taking, not taking full blame for my actions. No one forced me to do what I did. Um, so I was still in that process and I was going through therapy 
still in that process. And my therapist did such a phenomenal job of kind of getting me to that point or not kind of, excuse me, really getting me to that point of accepting ownership. No one told me to do what I did. And I obviously have a problem with alcohol. So the serious turnaround for me or the, 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 the exact moment when I had that turnaround was the first time I held my child. Um, when I held my son Maverick, as cliche as it sounds, that's such a monumental moment for, for someone who, I, I guess for me, when I was struggling mentally, struggling for a purpose in life, um, knowing that football is done for me. So what am I going to do now? So holding my son for the first time, I told myself, forget about a job, forget about the NFL, forget about everything else. This is a purpose that I have no matter what. If we eliminate everything else from my life, every single action that I do is going to directly impact another person's life significantly. So the first time I held my son changed my life. And having my therapist along the way helped me as well. Because many conversations, obviously, about my child with my therapist, my relationship with alcohol, with, you know, having that conversation, it was, um, it was a very intrusive process, but one that I needed. Yeah, that I think, I mean, I've heard that from several people. Um, that that first time you hold your child, I think, is a is is life changing in so many ways. Um, but I mean, I've heard that from so many people too. That you know, they felt like they were missing something. They spent their life looking for a purpose. They tied their identity to a singular thing. Of this is what I am. I'm a football player. I'm a writer. I'm a whatever. Like this is my thing. And when that doesn't provide you the fulfillment that you're looking for, you keep searching and then when you have that child that becomes your purpose and your focus absolutely my son greatest thing that's ever happened to me um by far because without him i think i would still be struggling um and i and i truly believe everything happens for a reason and and i'm just extremely grateful i really really am um but you know it's not i don't want this to come off as is you know it's been it's been great it's been awesome since the day I put the bottle down. It hasn't. It, it's it's tough. It's tough because, you know, I, I I I have moments where I'm sitting here when I sit back and think about the parties I've been to, the why couldn't I control it like the rest of my friends? You know, what's wrong with me? In a sense, so I'm so I still have moments where I have that, but the tools that I was provided from my therapist allow for me to quiet that voice <laughs> and understand what I've been given now within or with because of my sobriety as opposed to prior to it um, is something that I'm going to look back on when I'm 70 or 80 that thank God that what happened to me happened to me um, because I believe if I didn't go through my trials and tribulations I most likely would be in prison. Yeah. yeah. Counseling staff and therapists and, and other people in recovery talk about, you know, you have to do it for yourself, right? You have to do it for, uh, for you. You can't do it for your kids or family and things like that, but it, that's a part of it. That be, that's part of who you are. So doing it for them is also doing it for you. If, if that's something that you want to be, if you want to be uh, a good parent, a good dad, then 
then you need to do that together um, and, and with them, for them, all of that stuff. So uh, it's cool to hear uh, that part of your story and, uh, you know, those levels of uh, seeing that gratitude and that, and that change that, you know, that's, that's kind of the same thing that, that keeps me going is like, this is why, right? This is, this is why. Um, so I'm really glad real quick. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I throughout my therapy. So real quick, you know, the first couple of months, you know, I kept telling my therapist, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to stay on this track. I'm going to stay on this path for my child. I have to be sober for my child, etc. But he said the same exact thing to me. He said, but hold on a second. What about for yourself? And, and that was, you know, light switch went off in my head. And then he actually continued because he knew that I was struggling with my identity. And he said, Monte, football was only a piece of your puzzle, not the entire puzzle. And I was blown away when he said that because he was like, football was a piece. Your son is like 75% of the puzzle. <laughs> and then the remaining is, you know, obviously, you know, of yourself. I can't really remember exactly how he said it, but you get the picture. Um, and that was really eye-opening for me because that's true. I mean, I, it's it's a job. It was a job that I was doing, and there's many other jobs out there. Yeah, it's a job that's different than most, but it's not my entire identity. And also, yeah, I, I, I'm on this journey for myself, and my son will, yeah, he will reap the benefits, obviously. Right, and, you know, and we, and we talk about that with people that, that we work with as far as uh, you know, you have to do it for you. And, and yes, your family is a, uh, is a beneficiary of, of you being sober. Uh, but you need to take care of yourself in order to be a, a good dad and, and to make sure that you're maintaining your recovery. So what does maintaining your recovery look like for you? Oh, yeah. Um, Got to keep myself busy. Got to keep myself busy. And it is a little difficult now. Um, obviously, during the pandemic, I'm a I'm, you know, being a sober Monte now, I really enjoy um, connecting with people. Um, I really struggle with it, you know, prior to being sober, but now I really enjoy connecting with others who are sober because I think the stories are very rich. People who have gone through stuff in their life, it, it, it brings some, it brings like, it's, it's just rich in a sense. So what I like to do now is just learn as much as possible. I'm learning how to speak Spanish. I'm learning the guitar. I'm, uh, what else am I doing? Um, I have my own podcast. I, I just trying everything under the sun to keep myself busy. Um, obviously in the realm of recovery, um, because I, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey. So I always tell myself, I just turned 30 and I'm like, okay, quite the ride in my twenties. Um, (laughs) from, coming from Missouri. Well, really, that wasn't even my 20s. Coming on campus, obviously playing, having a good collegiate career, then going into the NFL. And then I was obviously hitting rock bottom. I was like, that was quite the ride, quite the ride. So I'm looking forward to what this next decade is going to be. So I think there's my, I guess the answer that I'm giving you guys here, sorry if I'm getting a little long-winded here, but the main thing that, you know, that I focus on that keeps me going is... I really always tell myself that I'm extremely grateful that the stuff that I went through happened in my twenties. Um, I, I, and I, I know I already said that, but that really helps me because that puts it into perspective of how young I still am. 
um, and how much life I still have. So I, I'm looking forward to staying on this path because I'm so anxious in a good way. And I'm very anticipating a sober life for the next 60 years, <laughs> 70 years. So I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just in a good place. You know, there's stigma everywhere. There's stigma around addiction. There's stigma around being in recovery. There's stigma around mental health. And specifically, I feel like for men, for masculine men, you know, you played football, you're a big guy, you know, there's a, there's stigma around asking for help. And you mentioned that part of your pull to alcohol was social anxiety, difficulty managing pressure. You, you're in therapy now. You, you mentioned how helpful therapy was for you. When you were first feeling all of these pressures, this social anxiety, this, this kind of storm inside you that led you to using alcohol as a coping mechanism because you didn't have any other coping mechanisms um, you haven't learned them, you hadn't built them yet to deal with all that. Do you feel like you were at a place then to either know to ask for help or feel comfortable asking for help? Would you like looking back and I know hindsight is 2020. Do you think you were in a place to even recognize that therapy is something that would have been beneficial for you had you known people who were utilizing therapists or counselors? Mm, I love that question. That's so many layers to that because for myself, I, I truly believe that emotional intelligence is a course that should be in the curriculum. Our elementary school um, is it that's that's where you should start it. Probably possibly even younger than that, um, but that should be a mandatory course for everybody. Um, and especially for athletes in a sense. And I don't want to obviously exclude others and say like athletes need more attention or care, but from my story, from what I've experienced with this, with the game of football, the toxic masculinity that literally just holds that sport together um, is something that I dove head first in. And what came with that is don't show your opponent that you're sweating. Don't show them that you're bleeding. Don't show them that you're weak or whatever. Any sign of, being human <laughs> is a sign of weakness in the sport of football. Um, and that's just what I was taught from the game day in and day out, year and year and year after another. So once I got to college and once I really started my junior year, start to start to understand that I'm really struggling with something, something's going on here. No, you don't hear stories from other people who, uh, or at least I didn't, um, who, spoke to a therapist or speaking to a therapist or anything like that. That's not what, that's not what guys talk about in the locker room. That's not what it's like. Um, that toxic masculinity is something I speak on a lot because, um, you know, in these locker rooms that I mentioned, men are getting pats on the back from cheating on their wives. Men are getting pats on the back from um, degrading women, um, et cetera. Then also with the game of football, it's, you can't, show any sign of weakness. So suppress it as much as you can. Remain stoic in a sense and go out there and do what you're getting paid to do. <laughs> um, so practicing that day in and day out, obviously that bleeds into your, you know, your life 
um, with your significant others, with your children. Um, nothing is wrong with me. I don't have to express my, you know, sadness or, or anything like that. And so that's something that I speak about heavily because that's something we need to change that relationship from coach to kid um, that being, you know, man or woman needs to, we need to redo that. We need to redo that. Our coaches need to understand that they're teachers, they're teachers for life. Um, understand that people have emotions that they're dealing with and try to help them work through them. Um, so I encourage more athletes to share their stories in the locker rooms and stuff because it's a tough world. It really is. You're dealing with a lot. You're dealing with pressures from social media, et cetera. So it's okay to exhibit or, or in a sense, display sadness, cry, all that stuff. I wish that I would have done more of that, but there is a lack of encouragement for our boys to do that. Um, so hopefully that long answer <laughs> um, actually answered your question. Um, there's so many layers to that. And I, and I really love that question because there's a lot of work that needs to be done within toxic masculinity. And I think it's important that boys, young boys, anybody really hears it from people like you, people like, you know, they hear it from their dads, their uncles, their friends, their teachers, but you know, they hear it from people they look up to that look like them too. Yeah. It's, it's a world where, and that's the thing you're taught to shut up, endure the pain and go out there and hit other people. And, 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 the way that you're taught on the football field is, I guess, just aggressive you are, the, the better results you get. Um, so that obviously carries into your real world, or at least for me it did, to where when I would get into these, you know, just slight mini arguments that every single couple gets in, to me, I, I, sh I would shut down. Um, I would shut down because I, I was not going to show that I was wrong. I was not going to show that I am feeling a little sad. So I would shut down. So that inability to help to express my emotions in a healthy way was not there. So the only thing that I knew was aggression. Okay, aggression, aggression. That's what I have to do. That is what I've been taught. Aggression, aggression. That's gonna give me really good results. No, unfortunately that's not how the real world works. You talked about uh, keeping busy and, and being busy, and, and I know that you're with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery now for the last uh, couple of months and, and have some new projects that you've been a part of. So so talk about that. Talk about OD2A a little bit. Yeah, OD2A. So um, the one thing I really love, first off, I love all of our grants, but one aspect of our ED2A um I talk about the ED2A, then I'll talk about OD2A. So ED2A, what I really love is we we actually go around town and um, actually setting up Narcan boxes um, at certain locations that are exper excuse me, experiencing a um, significant, um, I guess, they are, experiment are experiencing a significant amount of overdose at these locations. Um, so we're placing Narcan boxes there for them. Um, so for anyone who wants to walk into a Walgreens in a sense, uh, and, and they may see somebody who's ODing or what have you, they can just go to the box, use it. Um, so that project I think is a lot of fun because we're actually boots on the ground and going around and actually installing them, taking pictures, talking to the managers, et cetera. But as for OD2A, they're overdose data to action. So what I've been doing is I've been teaming up with other stakeholders in our community of color, and we're actually putting something together right now, um, you know, Wisconsin Voice to Recover with 100 Black Men of Madison um, to kind of put together a program for youth um, of color and also their parents 
um, because we're starting to um, see the statistics are showing that our youth are starting to experiment with drugs at, you know, nine years old, um, nine years old and 10 years old. So, and, and the thing is, they're experimenting with their parents. Their parents believe that if I introduce my child to this drug, then I'll be able to, you know, control their behavior with it or their relationship with it. But in a sense, what you're doing is you're, you're telling them that it's okay. You're telling them that it's okay. So the conversations that I'm looking forward to having is kind of like this virtual tour we're putting together with kids and their parents is, uh, you know, pretty much everything I've been explaining here, how it, you know, it does not discriminate. Um, it will catch up to you. Um, it caught up to somebody who was a Heisman finalist, Doak Walker award winner, Super Bowl uh, player, or what have you. Um, it does not discriminate. It'll claw, scratch, and tear down whoever it needs to tear down. Um, so there's no point of it. There's no reason to experiment with it, et cetera. So I'm very passionate about that project we're putting together because I believe that we have many programs for adults, but I really want to start implementing programs for our youth and kind of having these small talks in a sense with them at an earlier age. That's what I'm really looking forward to. Have you presented to like high school football teams, peewee league football teams on the, the toxic masculinity? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a great term. And, and, and uh, thinking about how I interact with my son and, and uh, you know, the words that I use and, and the way that I speak, like, I, I get it. Um, I don't know how to say it differently. <laughs> I don't know how to, <laughs> how to pair it differently, but yeah. Uh, so I, I had a wonderful um, conversation with NIU football team. So the head coach for the Northern Illinois Huskies is Thomas Hammock. And he was my running backs coach at Wisconsin. So that's how that obviously that connection worked out. But um, I've talked to, um, you know, obviously uh, kids who were in college playing football um, youth as well. I have not really dove in and had conversations about toxic masculinity, but I'm most definitely looking forward to that um, next year because I think the relationship between, I always said it earlier, coach and um, player is important. And then obviously outside of athletics, the relationship with father to, to, to boy and even father to daughter or mother to daughter is very, very important, but obviously surrounding toxic masculinity father to son your son is really looking up to you really examining your behavior and so i just challenge our fathers to cry if you're feeling sad cry hug your hug your boy tell him you love him etc um, because i think that's what we're lacking here in america um you know in the fabric of america it's this patriarchal the dad just doesn't cry. He provides, he, he has to sit here and endure all this pain and struggle, but can't speak about it. Um, and I just hope we really get away from that because it's, it's not healthy. It really isn't. So I'm looking forward to having conversations with schools and, and all that stuff. I actually, I'm going to speak to Middleton high school, their coaches on the 16th of this month, um, and then speak to their um, entire athletic program all sports as well. So it's coming, it's coming and I'm looking forward to it. You've mentioned a couple of times that projects you're working on with Voices of Recovery is specific to people of color or youth of color and really making that connection with them and talking about the importance of mental health 
recovery, getting into treatment, that kind of thing. So have you noticed any differences or how substance use addiction, asking for help, getting into recovery, how people of color are affected differently or how their, their journey is different through that process? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant question. I think it's, there's a significant difference in the, that's a healthcare disparity. You know, I feel like, which is why I, I, I'm blessed to have been brought on with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery for that diversity aspect of creating that linkage between our communities of color and some pretty powerful resources. And, but how do you, how do you get to that point? Well, you have to have someone for, for one who represents that, <laughs> that demographic. And then two, after obviously you have that aspect, then you got to build that trust. Because um, obviously someone who is of color, I get it. I get it how it's, you know, our social work field, that being our therapists, psychologists, et cetera, a majority are white. A majority don't look like, um, you know, how I look. So it may be difficult to explain some of the challenges that a person of color faces to a therapist who's white because it's completely two different worlds. Um, so I, I do see a difference um, for care, unfortunately, for our communities that are white as opposed to our communities of color. And, you know, this is what we see all across America, of course. And, and I hopefully we're getting to a point to where we actually really start addressing it, um, the healthcare disparities and, uh, and just encouraging our, uh, you know, our youth and our people of color to get that help. Um, but also on the flip side, I think there has to be some ownership as well within our communities of color. Uh, that being, we have to stop and speaking of my own experiences, not from my parents, but from some extended family members, et cetera, we're taught in our communities, we're not taught to go and speak to a shrink. We're not. We're, we, I guess indirectly, we're taught to drown out your problems with alcohol and or drugs. Um, and that, I mean, we can date that all the way back to, to you know, after 1865, once slavery was abolished. Um, you know, obviously we, um, you know, had a significant amount of generational damage from slavery and being oppressed um, and obviously weren't provided the resources to get help. Um, and, and I think it's just passed down and passed down and passed down not to trust a white face um, and then especially don't trust a white face who is trying to help you um, because they don't get it. So I, I just hope and I'm looking forward to us coming with a different message to our youth of color, telling them, reach out, go speak to them. They can really help you. Um, so I think both parties really need to come together and, and, and get it done. What do you think coalitions like Breakwater where do you think our biggest opportunity for positive impact? How can we help communities? What can we do from your perspective to help reduce or prevent substance use from happening when you're 9, 10, 14, 17 years old? Well, for one, I think you guys are already doing it is providing content, good, healthy content of those who have struggled with it, those who are in recovery and, and providing resources, of course, for people to reach out for help. I think just starting the conversation goes a long way. Um, but I think, there's a, I think there's a lot of power in, in trying to encourage as many people as possible to become recovery coaches or peer support specialists. I think that's really huge, specifically peer support specialists, I think is very huge. You know, instead of 
I, and when I say this, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the traditional route, that being sitting on a couch and talking to a therapist, because that's what worked for me. And that's what still works for me. But obviously, we're going into this more modern era where I feel like some people may benefit, significantly benefit from that peer support specialist role, kind of like that sponsor, the sponsory role, where it's just having that social connection with somebody who has lived experience is huge. And, and not having the approach of a mental health worker with them, but having that approach as a friend, like, hey, man, or, or, or if it's a woman, of course, be like, uh, reach out to me whenever, reach out to me at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. When you're thinking about using, call me. Because um, obviously, I mean, you don't, unfortunately, you don't have that aspect when with a therapist, they're, they're not going to answer your call at 2 a.m. But the peer support specialist or sponsor or what have you, I think that is huge. I really, really do. And, and I, it goes back to what I stated earlier, that social connection. I think we're getting to a point in our research to where we're starting to really understand that the opposite of addiction. Um, and obviously this is, you know, still in working progress, but the opposite of addiction is a social connection. Um, you know, people who struggle, you know, struggle with an identity, struggle with, you know, where do I belong in this world or in this community? I think having that social connection is huge and it starts with a peer support specialist for some. What do you think is the biggest thing missing for youth? Youth who, you know, we see a lot locally that I mean, and nationally too, a, a common first age of use is for, around 14, 13, 14, 15 years old. And of course, the science shows that if you start using or experimenting with substances at an early age, 14, 15, 16 years old, um, you are much more likely to develop a serious substance use disorder later on in life. What do you think is the biggest opportunity we're not yet capturing with youth it's a powerful message because i think we're you know the part that it's, it's frustrating is i believe the answer to this question would be uh you know i'd be able to provide an answer to this question 10 15 years ago um because i say that because right now we're we're, we're dealing with social media my gosh we're dealing with social media and that is huge on our youth right now. I mean, we see it with TikTok, we see it with obviously Instagram, um, Facebook. And, and, and when I say that is we're dealing with the fact that people are glorifying alcohol use, drug use, obviously with our rap music of degrading women and obviously the drugs and alcohol that go with that as well. So we are dealing with, a monster right now that being social media and i don't know how we can <laughs> pull the plug it's obviously that's not a that's not a thing that we can do but i guess the overall message would be just to provide as much content as possible on social media for for our youth um, that being videos that being other people talking about their journey that and allowing for them to possibly share theirs um you know what they're experiencing what they are experiencing at home, um, the stressors that they're probably experiencing from their parents or split household, et cetera. Um, I think we have to have a huge footprint on social media. I think we really have to. We cannot ignore that. Anything else you want to share, Monte? Um, I do. I do. Uh, so I, this will be my first time ever saying it. Um, I am coming out my book. My book comes out next spring. 
Yay. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So my book is coming out next spring and um, I don't want to say the title yet because I don't want somebody there to go and steal the name, but the name fits exactly with um, exactly what I share or how I felt. Um, and the reason why, you know, because some people have been messaging me, when you come out with the book, why I've been taking so long about it is because first off, I wanted to be enough years removed from um, everything. And then obviously sharing a story about domestic violence, I just got to make sure I I, I share it right. Um, I have to make sure that my message comes off appropriate, meaning I have and will continue to take full ownership for my behavior. doesn't matter what she said or what she did. Um, it's It was my actions. And I did that to myself. Um, and also, I just wanted to make sure that I was in a good place mentally to come out with this. So I'm looking forward to sharing some very personal stuff in my book, um, very powerful messages, hopefully. They, they're powerful. <laughs> uh, and just continuing this journey. Um, it's been a humbling experience, and I'm just forever grateful. I really, really am. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and taking the time to talk with us and sharing us, letting us be the first ones to formally hear about your book. And I hope that when it's out, uh, you come back and talk to us about it. Absolutely. I most definitely, I would love to. Uh, I love writing. Um, my therapist encouraged me to start writing back in 2016. That's when I started writing this. And then uh, here it is. Here It'll be coming out in three or four months. Yeah, great, uh, great messages, uh, messages of, you know, the, the ups and downs and, and things that be, can, can be created. And for somebody that, uh, you know, was at the pinnacle, uh, but then it's not over, right? It's, it's not, uh, it's not done then. And then, uh, you know, building back up and, and uh, rebuilding Monte a a new and and starting over and, and the opportunity that that brings as well. Absolutely. And I, I got to give credit to you guys as well for what you guys are doing is awesome. I think we need more of it. And uh, I will encourage every person I come across to, uh, to check you guys out. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you guys.